This episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me, as always, is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, Laura. It is September 7th. It is Friday. We are fresh out of the Indian buffet. Uh, we are full. We've we got... immediately <laughs> regretted that decision. <laughs> um, we're trying this new early afternoon recording instead of an evening thing. Um, so we'll see how that goes. I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, but, but we've got, I think, a pretty full episode for you guys today. We so, always have a full episode, um, Eric. Well, today feels extra full for whatever reason. Um, because of the Indian food. It's probably food. just me that feels that <laughs> way. Um, but anyway, uh, before we kind of get into the, the various things um, in and around the book world we want to talk about today, um, how about the basic rundown? Yeah, so we're at the beginning of September, which means that you have three whole special episodes coming at you this month. Mm-hmm. That includes a query show, a first pages show, and whatever. Whatever else we decide to do. Maybe it'll be a Call of Cthulhu, a role-playing game. Mm-hmm. Maybe it'll be a Q&A. Maybe it'll be a syn- another synopsis uh, critique episode. You know what? We're going to leave that up to you guys. So if you have a specific desire, write in. Yep. Um, but we will need your work to do the critiques at the very least. So send us your questions, your queries, and your first pages or your synopses to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com, um, and we will read and critique on air. So to start this week off, Laura, um, we found an article that um, it was in the Wall Street Journal. It was titled, The Unbearable Darkness of Young Adult Literature, Books on Sexual Abuse, Dysphoria, Racism, Gang Life, Domestic Violence, and School Shootings. Um, This was by a man named Steve Salerno. Not a friend of the podcast. (laughs) The basic premise, from what I can tell, is that this man is wondering aloud why YA is so dark all the time and how come we can't have more inspiring YA stories that will make teens actually want to live in the world. Um, Yeah, and his his premise (laughs) is that even though a lot of people go through these like dark, bad events... By giving literature to only like or giving only this type of literature to young adults will mean that because they want to be in the in crowd, they will also start becoming depressed and have gender dysphoria and be involved in school shootings. So you hated this article. I and hate I would it. love to just turn you loose on it. So. Um well, okay, so in a lot of ways, I, I think that we don't need to do like a take by take right. takedown no, 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 of this article because first of all, online has already done that. Second of all, this article starts off with talking about Heather has two mommies, mm-hmm. which is a uh, not a YA book, but it was also <laughs> published in 1989. So really, it just has nothing to do with the modern state of YA literature. Right, yeah. um, and so when somebody starts off with a YA article about something that is uh, not relevant in any sort of way, mm-hmm. I feel like everything from then on is just incredibly suspect, um, including there was this one paragraph which I just snorted really loud about. Um, and I'm just going to quote it directly because you can't make this shit up. <laughs> Inspiration has always been the hallmark of young adult literature, which traditionally consists of reassuring texts infused with values espoused by most of mainstream society. And many of today's best-selling books in the YA genre remain faithful to that ethic. But such books tend to not, not to catch the eye of curators of today's lists of recommended titles, who evidently assume that all students arrive at school traumatized in some fashion. 
First of all, <laughs> have you ever been a child? Of course you're traumatized. Second of all, this is just bullshit, right? Like the inspiration has been the hallmark of young adult literature is absolutely in no way true. Yeah, I thought that that seems a little academically. There yeah. are three considered start points to the YA category, yeah. right? The first one, 1942, Maureen Daly, um, the 17th summer, which is um, just like you know a fairly like straightforward romance novel, right? Um, and then about a decade later, we had um, Catcher in the Rye, which I would say probably is not reassuring text filled with values espoused by most of mainstream just society. It's really, really lighthearted romp. That yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> Followed by The Outsiders, which also like, no, like that's not. So if you start a category, if you start a type of book out with those type, those books, right, if two out of the three are absolutely the opposite of mainstream society. Like that's that's not what that is. Well, it just seems it's just clear to me that um, obviously YA does not exist to be this like sunny, reassuring category, nor has it ever tried to be. You know, and yeah. I guess like more obviously this man is wrong and he's incorrect in a I, lot of ways. And yeah. as you've kind of as you've kind of pointed out, this sort of article pops up. From time to time. Every like, five in, like, or a six major, months minimum. In like a major legacy publication. Yeah. And so my question to you is, you know, obviously, you know, we could, you know, you could go line by line through this and pick apart all the reasons it's done, but everyone's already done that. And and I'm, I guess I'm more interested in like, where does this keep coming from? You know, because I, I feel like it kind of once again gets at that idea that the YA discussion always feels a little bit more confrontational and combative. <laughs> and on the one hand, I'm like... Why is everyone so angry all the time in the um, in the conversations themselves? But also, I get it because it feels like this kind of crap keeps popping up. Um, and so, what's um, like? Why do you think this kind of article just keeps showing up? As yeah, why do these like, keep getting greenlit? Yeah, why are there still column inches in the Wall Street Journal about this? Yeah, um, I think there are a few reasons. I think the first. Is that, you know, adults are highly concerned about the children, right? They're the future. They want to, like, they they really want to, like, be all up in a kid's business. Yeah. Kind of, like, beyond the idea of neurological development or kind of what kids themselves are really interested in. Um, there is this idea that, like, them as older people, people who have survived childhood, um, want to you know, kind of understand and be in control of the narrative sure. for the younger generation. Sure. Um, kind of going deeper into that, I think there is also this, like, deep discomfort amongst adults by the fact that there is a type of book that theoretically you're interested in, right? Like, 60% of the people who read YA novels are not teenagers. Mm -hmm. And so, like, theoretically, you're very interested in this, but there's kind of this, this discomfort and this disconnect between I like this and this is for me. Like, YA novels are not written for <clears throat> adults. Yep. They're just not written for right. adults. The things that they talk about, the things that they cover, like they are not for you. And so I feel like these these poorly thought out, poorly reasoned articles are just at a sense to kind of redefine the category and redefine the books so that adults can exert a sense of ownership over them. Theoretically, if you understand something then it sort of belongs to you. 
Um, and, and that is like, it's really, really hard to be a reader and go, oh, this isn't meant for me. You know, it's really hard to believe that just because you can read it doesn't mean that maybe you like shouldn't or that it's not for you or that somebody didn't think of you in, in, you know, have you in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, and and so I think the 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 publishing of these bad takes, as it were, um, is is sort of meant to redefine what these what these categories are and and diagnose them as something like a problem to be solved mm-hmm. so that you as the adult reader can go in and like know something about it and kind of make your mark on it. Um, which, which is, you know, is further complicated by the fact that most people who write YA are adults and they're writing it for kids, but then there's adults reading it. And so it's just like these articles keep shoving teens out further and further. You know, when you, this, this whole article is essentially shaming teens for what they like to read, Mm -hmm. you know, it's shaming them. And it's, it's, it's in an effort to take control over the whole market. I believe it's, it's also one of those things where um, like this man's kind of throwing up his hands at a certain subsection of experience that he clearly like doesn't understand or really it seems like empathize with all that much. Like there's a line here, you know, I mean, obviously a lot of this is kind of nonsense, but there's one bit here that I sort of keep coming back to. And it's where he says, and if it is, if indeed it is psychologically debilitating for the young people depicted in today's YA literature to inhabit a world of virulent racism and interminable bullying and sexual abuse, then why make the vast majority of students who don't live amid such conditions feel as if they do? And it's like one of those lines that you see in other, you know, non-book related conversations where it's like, well, it's fine for most people. Why should we have to hear from? Why should we have to hear from the ones for whom it isn't? Why should and, I have to hear about somebody who's right. starving when exactly. I have food? Exactly. I mean, really, it's kind of what it is, and it's that's the kind of thing you just kind of have to push back on that. Yeah. And obviously, Steve is not really the problem. I mean, Steve is one guy, but that strain of thought is a lot more common in a lot more areas than just YA lit, and it's something that I think needs pushing on. You know. Um. So, next, there was something that happened um, this week, and this was kind of more, I think, on my radar than yours as someone who enjoys sports, and sp- in particularly football. Um, but I have to admit, my <laughs> my favorite is probably baseball because yeah. you get to drink beer with it. Yeah, and you, get although, stri- and you get to strike out your dad and deal yeah, with your father issues. Yeah, yeah, although Print Run is, I think, officially against <laughs> baseball. Yeah, but I still get so many, Laura. Baseball I get a baseball books? book every day, yeah. and they're all and they are all striking out. Every my dad. single one of them is the joke. Like I, I haven't, I haven't opened a single one that's like in defiance of the thing I keep joking about it being. But anyway, um, <laughs> and this is gonna this is gonna tie back into something I think really matters in the way publishers and agents kind of are dealing with you know modern trends and you know conversations in the book world too. But this week, Colin Kaepernick uh, got a Nike deal. And swoosh. Yeah. For those who um, for those who don't know who he is, I'm sure that you do by now. The president even now talks about him all the time. You know, it's one of those things where he's kind of become a national story. But originally, two years ago, this man, he's a professional football player, um, decided to kneel during the national anthem in protest of police brutality. 
right? He was tired of, you know, these kind of spate of extrajudicial killings that were happening in this country and continue to happen in this country. And he quietly took a knee as just kind of a personal moment of, you know, protest. And um, people finally asked him, well, hey, what are you doing? And he very clearly and politely told them what he was doing and why. You know, he said it's for police brutality. And, of course, um, everybody lost their minds, right? And we don't need to go into all the ways in which they lost their minds and all the ways it kind of ties into nationalism and patriotism and all these things. But basically, Colin tried to talk about this thing, this very specific message, right? He had a very clear, like it was not unclear what he wanted to talk about and why. And over the course of two years, um, not only was his message completely washed out, Right. Suddenly he was, you know, people started referring to it as you've probably heard this topic referred to as like the anthem protests. Right. As though he's protesting the national anthem for some reason, as opposed to protesting during the national anthem about a specific issue. You know, like it's it's sort of completely washed away. And now it's sort of he's sort of this like um, totem for just like kind of this broad you know swath of social justice as any as anyone sees it. And, you know, I mean, in the middle of that, you know, he's he's lost his job. He's, you know, I mean, he isn't playing football anymore and probably won't anytime soon because NFL owners refuse to sign him to their teams. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's pretty much, I mean, up to this point, I mean, he basically had to kind of choose this message over the career he had spent a life yeah. trying to make. Right. And it's so, essentially like a more public version and a more racist version of what happened to Chris Cluey. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, kind of in a way, yeah. right? But like, so he, this man goes through all this over the course of a couple of years. And at the end here, Nike comes in and says, you know what, we want to sign this athlete. And they give him this deal. And maybe you've seen the ads. And it's, you know, kind of this cool. Um, Stand for something. Yeah. It just, you know, maybe you'll lose everything, but at least you've done it. You know, right. kind of kind of vibe. And it's this sort of, um, it's this sort of kind of vague, mar- you know, corporate speak you know, stand for, you know, believing in something in yourself and whatever it is you're, you're passionate about that Nike usually runs with. And like I said, the ad is cool. But there's something, I think, to be kind of learned here from the way, like, the big money always comes in at the end of these sorts of things, especially as it relates to, like, progressive protests and especially, especially as it relates to black protest. You know, there's a point at which, you know, progressive stuff... You know, it can go through the ringer, right? Like it can absolutely, like this. Like I said, this man lost his job. He was publicly, you know, he was publicly ridiculed. He was, you know, verbally assaulted all over the place. He, you know, he was kind of berated by basically everyone. Um, you know, the president turned on practically turned into a turned it into a campaign issue. You know, yep. And all these different things, and then finally, but he sticks to his guns, right? And he does the work, and he sticks to his beliefs, and he does all these things. And gradually, the message washes out as people refuse to engage with him on the topic. And eventually, it becomes just watered down enough that a corporation decides it's palatable enough for a white audience. Yep. And they sign him. And it just got me thinking about the way we kind of talk about diversity in publishing and the way we talk about um, getting in new perspectives in publishing. Because one thing that I see happen a lot is this idea where someone who's marginalized mm-hmm. has to go and they they want to write a book about something that maybe no one in the mainstream publishing world has really grappled with in a major way and certainly not with any sort of money behind it, right? And they get going and they write and people say no or there's, you know, there's not really a room for that and all the different reasons why marginalized writers don't, you know, get the opportunities currently that they deserve. Um, 
And eventually, though, if they stick it out long enough and they do all this work behind the scenes without support from anyone, eventually they're able to kind of build themselves and scrap, you know, their way to a point where someone, you know, whether it's an agent or a publisher will simply like co-opt it and like make it into something that's a little bit easier to swallow for the all too comfortable, you know, readers that they think are, you know, going to take pick up the book. And it's the sort of thing that leads to you know, agents slapping a, you know, and just a, like a hashtag MSWL <laughs> over like a really well thought out, you know, thread of, you know, someone kind of talking through their lived experience or their art. You know, it's like, you know, some someone can just kind of come in and be like, oh, yeah, no, I want that. Or a publisher like finally deciding, yeah, you know, we've decided to be a part of the social change after ignoring it for years and like publishing and Coulter, you know what I mean? <laughs> like all this kind of crap. And it just, you know, it makes me think, you know, where was Nike? And where were these, you know, these brands and all this enthusiasm when Colin needed it, you know, when he was trying to get back on the field and like resume his normal life. When he was still a sports star. When he was still someone who was who didn't hadn't lost all these things, you know, but it's like once he's lost all the things, then someone comes in and literally brands the fact that he has lost the stuff without ever want like again like nike isn't is giving him a platform to talk about police brutality yeah. you know what i mean and the nfl responded in a statement and they didn't mention police brutality either like no one is talking about the thing that he originally did all this to talk about and i just i think that you know as it relates to the ways in which publishers make acquisition decisions and decide who gets to be on the list we can't have this same sort of leading from behind where publishers jump into these movements at the very end as soon as they've decided, yeah, you know what, we've reached a point where I think I can sell this to enough uncritical white people that <laughs> not really, though. I mean, that's what it is. Yeah, like, I know. It's, you know, once they've decided that this message is just, you know, lightly palatable enough for um, anyone to pick it up that we can make some money off it, then we're in, you know. And so I'm not one of those people that's like applauding Nike because I don't think they've done anything particularly brave. I think they saw a, an opportunity to add to their brand in a way that it, to me feels pretty safe and it's only safe because the the person who actually took on the risk exposure did the work beforehand. I have a question for you Eric. Sure. Do you think that if if this had gone a different way, mm -hmm. right? Like if if Kaepernick was still employed mm -hmm. in um the NFL. Yeah. Do you think that if, you know, 2 years out again Nike would have given him a sponsorship deal. No, because they're, the thing that they're branding is the loss of everything. Yeah. The ad is about, the ad is about, well, even if you lose everything, stand up for everything. So if he hadn't, like the thing, they like, it's almost as though they waited around until he had a story that felt cool enough and it was only made cool by the fact that his life fell apart yeah. while doing this. And I just, it's the thing with it. For well, it's me, too pulled. It's, it's. Now it's separated from that particular sport, right? Yeah. Like it's it's sanitized and it's separated. Yeah, I mean, in, in the yeah, it has nothing to do with football anymore. I mean, he in the ad, he's wearing street clothes. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it, it, he's not a football player anymore. He simply isn't. I mean, no one's going to sign him. He's not presented as one in the marketing. I mean, it's he's just a guy. And I guess the way it relates to me, you know, to to the book stuff. And here's your publishing angle: is that publishers need to jump in and agents need to jump in and be a part of these things before Sooner. before the moment where they've decided that the least common denominator in terms of progressive belief is willing to, you know, purchase it and, and buy on, you know, 
writers and creators and these kind of people are they're sticking their necks out to do this stuff. You know, they're foregoing other opportunities to write things they believe in, you know. Colin certainly did. And if you can take that analogy to any writer who's writing something that theoretically is more true to their experience and more true to their beliefs at the expense of writing something that's quote unquote marketable, right? And if we really want those stories to happen, then we need to jump in before they're marketable. We need to actually do the work before it's on trend or anything. Because one thing I think, you know, we've talked about before on the show and lots of people have is that there's this danger that diversity gets treated as a trend. Yeah. Right. And the only reason that's true is because the only time anyone talks about diversity is when they are certain that they can make money off it. And it's like if you really want to increase this kind of stuff, you have to jump in and you have to take a stand before you see the immediate dollar amount behind it. Yeah. And I don't know. I mean, so what's the- what's complicated about it for me is that like I am like I saw, you know, I like the ad and I am personally I am glad that he got his money because he deserves to have these opportunities. And I think it's good that he got one. I just you're not going to find me applauding. night. You know what I mean? Like, it's just not something that I think is particularly brave, even as I'm glad it happened. You know, we we talk a lot on the show about how publishing like isn't actually progressive. Right. It's not actually liberal. It's not right. actually, you right. know, a force for right. good. No, it's, by a itself. Neutral, it's a neutral content. Yeah. And, yeah. and if if anything, it, you know, kind of skews conservative mm-hmm. um, monetarily and yeah, monetarily for sure. And I, I was reminded when reading um, when reading about this this Nike issue I was reminded of like Milo Mm -hmm. um, with the Simon and Schuster debacle where Simon and Schuster offered um, Milo a very, very large deal before, you know, he was kicked off of every social media platform Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, all that jazz. And then they they pulled the book deal and they pulled the book deal under a morality clause. Right. Right. And so this week, um, Publishers Lunch, which is... um, the like publishers marketplace um news section <laughs> mm-hmm. uh they finally did some reporting off you know off of mor- morality clauses in 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 contracts and so 3 out of the 5 big 5 publishers have morality clauses just in all of their basic boilerplate contracts which is to say just for context which is to say that a publisher, if it finds you to be behaving in a way that they view unseemly or in a way that could jeopardize their sales, they can end the contract. They can. Right. Um, thank goodness most of them don't require you paying back the right. money. Right. Um, and then there's one that has morality clauses that are only put in sometimes but are kind of becoming more and more common. And the only one that doesn't have it at all is Macmillan. Mm-hmm. Um And so I, you know, as an agent, of course, you know, as an agent, you know, theoretically, we are against morality clauses because it just gives a publisher another out to not publish a book. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, as an agent, I just, you know, I want to lock that down. Right. I want, you know, once we sign this contract, I want this book to come out. Um, But one thing it kind of does beyond just giving themselves a little bit more of an out with particular projects as i've been thinking about it's it's very similar to the Kaepernick situation in that it allows room for hedging right yes. like nike yes. by giving Kaepernick a deal now 
they're able to essentially rewrite what has happened and say, oh, no, look, we're the good guys Mm -hmm. where they really just kind of like sat off and didn't do anything for a very long time. Mm -hmm. So when publishers have a morality clause, which, you know, like you will behave in this way that's consistent with your brand and consistent with our values or else we might not publish you. Mm-hmm. Um, when publishers sign somebody that is either good or bad, you know, whether it's Milo or it's, you know, a, a good progressive, mm-hmm. um, progressive person right. or just somebody in between, right? Like, you know, whoever they publish, it allows them for that ideological wiggle room, right? It allows them the chance to, at the end of the day, if they decide that to walk away from it, they can say, well, we they can walk away claiming legally that they were the good guys, right? Because they exactly. can enforce. They can say, well, we're enforcing the morality clause and we've decided to walk away from you. Never mind that they signed the person in the first place. Yeah. Never mind that they knew what they were getting into with some of these people. But like it's, it's you're right. It's absolutely it's one more option to take. To claim to the moral high ground at the last possible decent second yeah. that you were able to. The only, the only difference between when uh, Milo Yiannopoulos got his book deal with Simon & Schuster and when he got his book deal canceled is that he said he had one soundbite. Like yeah. out of out of an entire bucket of morally reprehensible statements, right? He said one thing that then started to turn public tide against but that, him. And that didn't stop Simon & Schuster from claiming... That, the moral high ground at the end, right? Yeah. Like said, oh, this is beneath, uh, you know. And it's this like, well, guy isn't consistent yeah. with our values. It was like, well, the only thing is that he had one interview that you didn't like. But the, yeah, so <laughs> it's like the point is at the end of all at the end of all this is that publishing. I mean, Nike here in this situation we're talking about um, as kind of a parallel illustration, but um, publishing has kind of a nasty habit of only deciding where it stands on something at the very last possible second. Yeah. And I think that. If it wants to actually make real progress, and like I said, I'm not sure that it does. I don't know. I don't think that that's a goal of publishing. But if it's going to be a goal of parties within publishing and who have the ability to kind of direct this sort of money, um, the answer has to come sooner in the process. And so um, that's kind of – I don't know. I, I saw that and I just saw a kind of a parallel in the way yeah. we kind of talk about other things. Yeah. But. So think – so – I mean, that that is something, you know, if you're a writer, you know, never, never, ever, ever will we begrudge a writer their opportunity to to get a big platform and get published, even though, you know, who might pub, might be publishing you will pro- likely be, you know, value neutral. Um, but it's it's definitely worth talking about and thinking about with your agent or, you know, with um, with whoever it is that's doing your contract or kind of even just with your editor about you know, whether you want that wiggle room to exist and what it means to be published in that in that type of space and with that type of liability on the line. Because I feel like I worry that you can extend it to a lot of things. You know, like maybe somebody lashes out on social media after they've been targeted by Nazis. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is seen as distasteful and then yeah. their book deal is canceled. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's, there's a lot of different, um, there's a lot of, bad silencing tactics that could potentially come out of this beyond just, you know, like not being being good and like letting somebody paint you as the bad guy at the end of a big, big ordeal. Um, but, yeah, it's it's worth thinking about. It's worth keeping in mind. 
Um, and, you know, it'll be interesting to see as morality clauses become more common, as Colin, Ka- Colin Kaepernick gets further into his endorsement <laughs> deal. It'll be interesting yeah. to see what what the legacy of all of this ends up being. So last week we introduced what we were hoping would be a really fun new segment of the show, right? Like we wanted to get into the advice column game. Yep. And Abby, we're coming for you. And boy, did you guys not disappoint. (laughs) Um, We got some great questions in. So we wanted to do um, at the end of this show um, to end the show instead of like a right tip this week. Yeah. We thought we would do two um, two letters in our new very sappy, messy, drama-filled advice column to Loon at May Concern. Yeah. And this uh, is different than our normal, like, Patreon right, Q&A, right. because the Q&A is mostly like, how many words should this synopsis no, this, be? No, this is about upping the mess factor. Yes. Yeah. This is about, like, difficult things you can't, like, questions you can't have in a tweet, things mm-hmm. that require yeah. a lot of, like, <laughs> batting around the bush and lots yeah. of puns yeah. and that sort of thing. Okay. So let's, let's do the first one. Would you like me to read it to you? Please. <clears throat> mm. To Loon it may concern... I, I love it. I Every love it, too. Time, I love it. Because it may concern the loon. It does concern us, in fact. Um, okay. I once heard a theory by other writers that some agents may request your manuscript and then hold on to it for a while until you get an offer of representation from another agent. Surely this is a rumor, I thought. But then my brain, as it usually does, started up its worrying. Laura mentioned it in an episode recently that she has full requests out that she's had for a while. She also said that the time in getting to the manuscript is not equal excitement for the manuscript. But I've heard all these stories of authors who got a call the day after submitting their full because the agent just couldn't put it down and didn't sleep all night or something. So here's what all these concerns add up to in my brain. What if I have multiple fulls out and no one's replying, and I'm, t- and I'm talking over a year here? I've nudged and gotten polite replies, but more waiting. What if the rumors are true and these agents are all just waiting for an offer of rep, but I never get one because they're all waiting? That's crazy, right? I'm being crazy. Though it's not ready yet, I do have yet another novel I would eventually like to query. I would also like to someday go from career querier to career author. Sincerely, Loitering in Limbo. Okay. Thank you for the letter, Loitering. Thank you. (laughs) L-I-L. Lil? Lil. Thank you, Lil. Um, So, the essence of the question here, I think, um, is what do you do when you've got a bunch of requests and no responses and it's been a long time? Like, how would you play this as the author? Or maybe before we discuss how we would play this, what do you think is happening? Okay. Um, so I am going to put this out here uh, and open myself up to more mess <laughs> and more shame by saying that I am one of those people who have fulls in my inbox that are over a year mm, old. Man. And, Can't relate. Yeah. And so, so typically, <laughs> Eric definitely cannot relate. Um, so here's, here's the... I understand from the writer side that this seems like something, you know, from all of the 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 rhetoric that agents have yeah. talking about reading submissions. This theory makes a ton of sense, right? Mm-hmm. You know that you you want to like kick up some interest, so you're just going to like sit on it for a while, mm-hmm. right? Um but it's bunk. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think it's yeah. bunk too. So here's here's what happens when you get an offer of representation. 
right? You get an offer of representation. And then if they're a good agent, they will say, okay, great. We've had this wonderful call. I propose to you. Um, I want you to go off and make sure that if you sign with me, you know that you're making the right decision. And that includes taking about a week or two, usually two, ideally two, to go back to all of the other agents who have your partials and fulls, et cetera, and tell them, inform them that you have an offer of representation, Okay, Mm -hmm. Um, and usually then it gives you as an agent about two weeks to look at it and decide if you want to fight for it or not. Um, And so it's that it's out of professional courtesy that we give other agents that two week time period. And then it's also out of professional courtesy that, you know, we get to it quickly. Mm. Right. Because we don't want to stand in the way of somebody else's career with their new agent. But we also like if I've requested it and there's now a timeline. Yeah. um, That'll be something that gets bumped. So that is one of the situations that happens. That's right? what's getting looked at from the other side. That here, is. is. Is that rush of reading that happens exactly. after one offer comes in because I think that that moment does spur other agents to read. It does. It's just I don't necessarily believe or I've never heard anyone talk no. like this and I don't. I, it's certainly not true of our work but like that I'm like waiting for someone else to give an offer so that I know that I need to get hustling because at least for me I'd rather I'd rather just win. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I, I know that, like, whenever I compete for a book or whenever I get a query in or a request that I'm, like, really, um, you know, thinking that, you know, I want to compete for, like, the answer to me is that, okay, be the first one to offer. You know, be the one who gets there a little bit earlier. Now, that kind of gets into what this writer's talking about where, you know, they hear stories of, um, you know, agents going really quick and having that be a sign of enthusiasm. But I... I guess I don't know. It's it's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people are just kind of backed up. Yeah. And how would you maybe the question is, is there anything to do here other than wait? Well, OK, so in in so just to kind of reiterate the fact that this isn't a real thing uh-huh. um, in 2016 and 2017, I offered on seven different projects mm-hmm. with seven different authors, mm-hmm. every single one of them had at least one other offer from Uh another agent, even if I was the first one to offer. Um, And I didn't get a single one of them. Do you understand how demoralizing (laughs) that is? That seven (laughs) projects you loved in a row just didn't come to you. So first of all, I just like can't handle that emotionally. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, I think I think there's a big difference between the act of reading a book that you really love, like staying up super late because you're reading a book that you really love and like getting to it as something that's in your slush pile. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's always a situation where like I will have been on the phone with an editor and we were just like spitballing about our like top requests or like the top wishes on our wish list and then I get something in my inbox which is exactly that and I just happen to have a free weekend and my husband is out of town and like the stars align and I'm able to read it right away right right um but that happens like once a year um and the rest of the time you know if I'm reading it and I'm really really loving it I'm gonna sit down and read it in three four hours but I need to get to it first and it's the getting to it that's hard like if you think about how many hours it takes to read a book And if, you know, you have even, which is a very small number, I have about 100, but if you have like 20 fulls in your inbox, that is still many, many, many full weeks of work if you're going to read them all the way through. And so I think think what this author is hearing 
is just like a lot of crickets for a lot of different reasons and is kind of assigning this very strange idea to it. But truly, which they've acknowledged. Yes. But but truly, like there is really nothing else to do. Like, I will get to it. I I would say so. Obviously, you know, the one answer is to just keep waiting. But that's not a very satisfying answer. It's not so satisfying. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what other advice there is. I mean, I guess, you know, thinking of when you've checked in with these agents, like if it's been a couple months on one, maybe you could send a note saying, hey, you know, it's been however long. Um, I'd love to decide if I should. I don't know. Is that the kind of note you would send? Or yeah, like, I would not send it, however, in the same thread because yeah. Yeah. um then you might knock yourself out of line <laughs> out actually, of place that is a really one thing that's actually a really interesting and really boring point that i think should actually get made on this show okay um because i don't know that people like most agencies i feel like use kind of the that gmail system you know right where once you respond to something the thread moves like up in the recency you yeah know, the whole all the emails and then you and, get to it later and so <laughs> like something that happens a lot is you people check in on their manuscripts and it moves the entire correspondence down my list, you know, mm-hmm. in my like folder of ones to read. And, and it always happens like two yeah. days before you're actually going to get right. to it. No, yeah. So like the doing it in a separate thread is, is a good idea. But um, I would say like if, if it's been a, you can maybe just be a little bit more frank. You know, there, it's there's a way to kind of be polite and just say, look. It's been a year. I'm, you know, trying to decide if I'd like to, you know, shelve this or yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Like Um, I'm or if I should, you know, keep trying with it. Yeah. Um, I know you were enthusiastic about it. I would really love the chance to talk to you about it. Like that seems fine to send a professional email like that if it's been a long time and you haven't checked in recently. Um, But that is honestly, I mean, in a way that is all you can do. And in terms of your own life, I would say, um, you know, just keep plugging away at the other book, you know, have yourself, you know, having a project while you query is a great idea, mm-hmm. you know, and, um, and you just kind of go, you just kind of go from there. And I would say that if you're not actively querying this particular project anymore, if all you have is like, are these requests, uh, requests, yeah. then yeah. I would say like, if you are ready to query something else, I'd say that can. you can, Yeah. like you don't yeah. want to be actively querying two, too. like two books at a time. But if one of them, it's just like you're sitting on it. Yeah. Then I think that's OK. Yeah. So I would say, yeah, no, I mean, I think that 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 is, I think, the best concrete advice we can get, which is that you can let these requests sit and start querying something else as long as you're not also still actively querying this first thing. Right. Yes. OK. OK. I'm going to read the second one. Please do. Dear the loon, <laughs> I think I'm being ghosted by my agent. She's kept me 100% in the loop about submissions and rejections for my picture book script, but I've asked her a few times about next steps now that we've gotten very supportive and thoughtful rejections from all the editors we wanted to send it to. When she signed me, she was also interested in a follow-up picture book and a YA novel that was then just an elevator pitch. I've asked her a few times now if she wants to take a look at the YA outline or character descriptions I've since written, or if she thinks I should write the darn second picture book so we can try it with some of the editors who encourage me to try them again with a different title character and i get silence am i being ghosted should i call her i don't want to call anyone she's not really interested in representing me if the first project wasn't an easy win do i even want to be a writer at all i don't really (laughs) feel like working on my new projects if there's no enthusiasm for them it's hard to find the motivation in this uncertainty and i love my day job so that gets most of my dedication but if somebody sees potential i'll buckle down and get some pages done 
I could look for a higher energy new agent, but I don't know if one picture book script is enough to go out with. I used to read manuscripts for my current agent, so she was more generous with me than I'd necessarily expect of agents I don't know. Which leads me to the same conundrum about what, if anything, to work on next. Plus, a new agent would require firing my current one, and that sounds like a big responsibility. I know I should follow my heart, but my heart is telling me to watch Making It on Hulu. Oof, man. Good letter. Good, Good letter. letter. All right, so... <laughs> We've got a whole we've got a whole situation here. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those ones where it sounds like, you know, there was a lot of initial enthusiasm about project number one and they had Which has of, since faded. Which has since faded because the initial sub list maybe didn't go the way they wanted. They probably thought it was gonna you know I'm You were like, out of what we call the infatuation phase. Yes, yes. And so what I would say here, the key to me is just sending a very like frank and clear email Mm -hmm. that just says um you know and you can you can say this i mean to your age like one thing that i think is broadly that i think is kind of weird that happens and i guess i understand why it happens but uh, you hear authors all the time saying that they are like they're like scared or uncomfortable about approaching their agent with something and that is something that if you feel that way about the person you're working with you should really interrogate why because I would hope that that wouldn't be the case in what's yeah. supposed to be kind of a really good, you know, kind of open working relationship. And so, um, like, for me, the fact that you kind of, like, feel that way is probably a sign that maybe something is amiss here. Like, just kind of fundamentally, at least to me. And I would just say, you know, the answer here is clear communication. You don't necessarily have to call because who likes calling? Nobody. Um, Nobody and does. And your agent definitely doesn't like phone calls um, if they're anything like every other agent I've ever met. Um, <laughs> but to me, the answer is just like a clear email that just says, um, hey, it just it seems as though maybe the enthusiasm isn't there for these next projects. Can maybe can we have a conversation about what can come next? And like. Yeah. Ask for that conversation, you know, put kind of an internal timer on it. If she doesn't get back to you within a couple of weeks on that, maybe it's probably, you know, like it's probably time to maybe think about something else. Yeah. And and you know what? Like, even if you're not quite ready to take that step, I mean, it might be worth it to like send a very frank email saying, you know, like I am not feeling supported. I'm feeling dissatisfied yes. by the level of our communication. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about it? And like, I know that, like, as as an agent who gets very, very emotionally involved yes. in her projects, um, when a project I really, really love seeks to really land or do super well like there's like there's almost like a grieving process there right there's frustration there's like as an agent you're kind of going through that emotional roller coaster as well but it's not one that you really want to show your author uh because you want them to you know to to trust that you'll you know figure it out and whatever but there is still that moment where you go oh like i i'm i'm sad about this right you're sad about it and so It could be kind of that or it could be that, you know, subconsciously this agent is, you know, feeling like she's no longer a good fit and thus is trying to maybe like get you to break up with her. Yes. Versus vice versa. And like and I know that that's not highly professional, but you know what? We're all people and we're all emotional and it's just kind of what happens. It just speaks to the idea, though, that a a conversation is needed. Yeah, exactly. Like no matter what, I think that the answer is don't 
The answer is don't call, but the answer is, I think, um, get on, you know, get an yeah. email and make it very clear that you have like not concerns. You know, you're not going to you're not trying to burn her inbox down, you know, with some big angry email. You're just saying, look, it feels as though in kind of the projects we initially yeah. discussed, the enthusiasm simply isn't there right now. That's fine. I would just love to discuss it with you. You know, I mean, there's lots of ways to kind of do that. And, and it is and it is like possible that maybe she's just super, super, super busy or going through some personal problem or something. And so but like sending that email where it's like, I am not satisfied with this. I'd like to have a talk will fight light a fire under their butt in one of two ways. One, they will say, you know, you're totally right. This is where I'm at. Like, this is what I'm thinking. And it'll put in renewed interest in it. Or number two, they'll say, you know what? I don't think I'm a good fit for you. I think we should part ways. And either way, um, I I think then you'll have the answer. Um, one thing that I'm never a really big fan of is just like putting the onus on you only to yeah. figure out what it is to do, because like right. this is a two way relationship and you need to have that relationship. Well, that's kind of what I'm saying, too, is that like this is not it's one of those anytime you get any writer, you know, and I've talked to plenty of writers who are working with other agents and things who come to me and say, I can't quite figure out what this means that they're saying. I'm trying to, right. co- you're they're like trying to, deco- we're not mind readers. They're trying to <laughs> decode the person that they're theoretically having like a close working relationship with. And it's like, if you're at a place where you can't just ask what they mean, then you need to get to yeah. that place or move on. Yeah. And so priority number one here has to be, I think communication, commun- Yeah, getting communicating clearly that you feel that something is amiss. And I mean, with regard to all these other big questions about whether you even like, whether you even want to be a writer and things like that, which um, that's going to become a lot more clear if I mean, it's one thing, you know, if the um, if your agent says, well, I just don't think the ideas are any good. You know, that's different than I just don't have time to work on them. You know, there's all there's all lots of all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. And, like, you know, obviously no one everyone hates changing agents. Everyone hates diving back into the query pool. But um, you know, it, it, it can happen and it's not the worst thing in the world to have to do. And yeah. And, you know, like there I would I would say, dear writer, um, definitely go watch Making It on Hulu <laughs> because because here's the thing. Yeah. Like if you are feeling like if you are feeling unsupported by your agent and you are feeling dejected by like your writing future and you don't really know what you want. Um, chances are a big part of that is tied into your uncertainty with your agent, right? And so I think you need to solve that before you can really like dig deep into do I want to be a writer? What do I want to write? What is my own personal vision? Because like it's really great to have another person really excited in your projects. But like writing sucks so hard if you don't like have the desire to do it yourself, that like I I am worried for you, dear writer, that um you're you might be going down a path that might burn you out from writing yes. here. Yes. And so like first deal with the agent and then either way, take a break. Mm-hmm. Like reassess truly what it is that you want, not what your agent wants, not what you think the market wants. Like really, really, truly think about what you want out of your career 
And, you know, maybe you truly are getting all of your creative satisfaction from your day job. And that's perfectly fine. You know, like if you are a writer, but only when that is your only creative outlet, that's equally as valid as being a writer who works no matter what it is their day job is. And so, like, deal with that second, but you need to get space from your agent issue before you'll be able to satisfactorily answer that. And I would also just say at the end here, there's this bit, you know, I guess I could fire my agent, but that sounds like a big responsibility. It's not that big a responsibility. It's not. It's just, I mean, really, like, those offer, It happens all the time. It, do, it really does. Like, it, it happens all the time. It's something that is professionally handled. It's a norm in this industry. People end up having divergent creative opinions that originally were close like that's it's really not that big a deal yeah. if you decide like sometimes so. the the agent will figure out that they're not super great or yeah. super happy working yeah. in your genre sometimes you will write something else or the market will change or like there's a million and seven reasons why an agent and an author might break up and like you know like i parted ways with one of my authors this week Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways that it was a good decision. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it's going to be good for them. I think it's going to, you know, I think it's going to help their career in a lot of ways. And I wish well, them absolutely well. Right. It's, and yeah, it's just, it's, it's what happens. It, right. You know, and, and that is okay. You know, there's this, there's this idea in publishing that everybody, you have to be your friend and every, you have to be like, you it's make really the decision bad. and then you're it's a in really it bad thing. and that it's really scary yep. and it's not true. Yep. Like it's not true at all. Yep. It's so, your, it's, and the thing of it is, and this is true across the board too, it's your career, not theirs. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Like they are, if you don't feel like this person is helping you with your career, then that is something that needs to be tackled head on. So, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, you messy, messy writers, you. We really appreciate <laughs> more. you. More. Send us more Send letters. us more. Uh, we really appreciate you uh, sticking sticking your uh, neck out there, putting your heart on your sleeve, all those other, like, metaphors and cliches. Um, send those to us. Send your, send your messy dealings to us. We're at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. And stay tuned for our critique episodes on Patreon coming starting next week. And we will see you for a regular episode next Tuesday. Bye.